Hello and welcome to another edition of the Rabbi Rabinowitz podcast hosted by the Jacksonville Kolel. As we approach Pesach, I'd like to make a number of podcasts discussing some of the basics of Pesach. Now the truth is there is so much, so much to discuss when it comes to Pesach. In fact, the Gemara tells us that 30 days before Pesach, one is already obligated to study the laws of Pesach. Now, this is a debate whether this is true for all of the Yom Tovim, all the holidays, or is this unique to Pesach? There's no question that Pesach has many more details than other holidays do. So, therefore, some say that this halach is actually unique to Pesach. Be that as it may, the Yom Tov, which we find ourselves about to uh, meet, is the holiday of Pesach. So, therefore, let's go and uh, spend some time talking about that. Parenthetically, I know I just started, how could I already be offering parentheses? But parenthetically, the actual name of the Yom Tov is Pesach, with an E under the Pe. You'll never find in the Torah that it has an A sound. Um, so the correct pronunciation is Pesach. Somehow it got corrupted, and it's referred to as Pesach, which is how I'll refer to it. But the real name is actually Pesach. Now, the Torah tells us that the reason why the holiday is known as the holiday of Pesach is because of the fact that Hashem was Pasach al Batei B'nei Yisrael. Now, what does that mean? It means that Hashem was Pasach over the homes of the Jewish people. Rashi has two definitions of what that word Pasach means. Um, one explanation that Rashi says is that Hashem passed over the Jewish homes, because as we know, there was the plague of the firstborn, and all the Egyptian firstborns were killed, and the Jewish firstborns were spared. So Hashem passed over the homes of the Jewish firstborns, hence the name Pesach, to pass over. Um, however, Rashi has another explanation that it doesn't mean to pass over. It's an unusual word. And Rashi says that it means to have mercy. Or I believe Rashi's word is chamal, which means to have compassion, to have mercy. So therefore Hashem had compassion over the Jewish homes when he went and hit the Egyptian homes. Nothing to do with passing over, just having to do with having compassion. So based on that, really the English translation of our holiday should not be the holiday of Passover, but the holiday of compassion or mercy. But uh, I guess Passover has a nice ring to it. So it's probably better that we call it that. Anyway, so what I want to talk about tonight is... What is the definition of chametz? What is the definition of matzah? So chametz is something which comes from the five grains. Now, the five grains that we have are barley, rye, oat, wheat, and spelt. I only did it in that order because it's an easy way to remember it. Browse, of course, without an E at the end, spells barley, rye, oat, wheat, and spelt. And these five grains are the only things which could become chametz. So what that means is if you have rice, if you have, uh, I believe buckwheat is not really uh, considered to be a grain, if you have uh, beans, if you have any other type of flour or any type of, of uh, I don't know what that word is, ingredient that would be included in a multi-grain, but it's not one of these five grains, so that would actually halachically not be considered to be chametz, and there would be no averet, no transgression for owning that on Pesach. So you can only be chametz if you are made from these five grains. Now, not anything from the five grains is going to be chametz because, of course, matzah is made from these five grains. So the definition of chametz, simply put, is it comes from these five grains, barley, rye, oat, wheat, and spelt, and there was water added to it, and it sat for a minimum of 18 minutes. If it sat for a minimum of 18 minutes before it got baked, then or cooked or anything like that, then it would have, in fact, become chametz. If 
it is possible, however, for it to become chametz in less time than that. So, for example, the same way that, uh, I think it's the same way, that sugar will dissolve in water. But if you want to speed up the chemical reaction, so you take your spoon and you give it a good stir, and it'll go faster. If you take it and you shake it up, it'll go faster. It is possible to speed up the chemical reaction, which is what happens when the grain becomes leavened, when it turns into chametz, um, that could actually get sped up in less than 18 minutes. Another factor that could speed it up is heat. So if, for example, if you have hot water, so that will also make it go in less than 18 minutes. How faster will it go? We don't know. Um, we don't know, but it could also be something that would make it go faster. So we assume that anything which is made from the five grains, which is not actually matzah, which is not actually matzah, is chametz. So if you want to know if something is chametz or not, very simple. Does it come from these five grains, barley, rye, oat, wheat, or spelt? And uh, if it's not matzah and there was water added to it, then it's going to be, then it's going to be okay. Now, uh, if you have like a bag of flour, so if you, have bag, if you have a bag of flour, now that bag of flour that you go and you buy in the store, Publix, Winn-Dixie, Walmart, etc., that bag of flour does not have any water added to it. On the other hand, it wasn't shmura. It was not guarded, watched, protected in any way to make sure that no flour got on it, and no water, rather, got on it. Um, therefore, that, wa- that flour itself, we would not assume, is necessarily, is necessarily chametz because it's just flour, there was no water added to it. Now, I've heard people argue before, I don't know enough about how this process works, that when they bleach the flour, there's some water that's mixed in. I don't know, but I do know that the uh, Starkey, for example, has a list of what's called chametz gummer and what's not called chametz gummer. Now, chametz gummer means like this. Chametz gummer literally means absolutely chametz. And what that means is that there are some people that have a custom that even though they will sell their chametz, before Pesach, to a non-Jew. We'll talk more about that coming up. But nevertheless, they will only sell chametz, something which might be chametz. But they have something which is true, real chametz, like a piece of bread or Cheerios or something like that, that 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 they, that they won't sell. And this custom is quoted as a uh, very admirable custom. It's a nice custom to have. Um, so the Star K has a nice list of which items are you should make sure to sell them and not own them on Pesach. In other words, there are certain things that aren't kosher for Pesach, but you're allowed to own them on Pesach. So an example of that might be uh, mustard. Mustard, there's probably absolutely nothing in your mustard which would make it chametz. You're not allowed to eat it on Pesach, as you're not going to find, I mean, you might find kosher Pesach mustard, which is not real mustard. You're not allowed to, you're not allowed to eat it on Pesach, but you wouldn't actually be required to get rid of it. Uh, you probably should if you're selling your chametz anyway, put it in the chametz cabinet and sell it, but you're not truly required to get rid of it um, because there's no chametz there. So there'd be nothing wrong with owning that on, there'd be nothing wrong with owning that on Pesach. So then we have certain things that might have a little bit of chametz mixed in. So that we, we that we do want to make sure that we get we get rid of and we sell that before before Pesach. So those people that say if it's chametz, then of course I'm not allowed to own it on Pesach. So either I could throw it out, I could burn it, etc. Or if it's a lot, I don't want to do that. I could take it and I could sell it to a non-Jew to avoid the transgression of owning chametz 
on Pesach. So any Chametz Tzedek, I'm going to do. And then there are those that have this admirable custom that they won't sell something which is true, true Chametz, but if there's a little bit of Chametz mixed in, then that they'll sell. So anyway, getting back to this, so the Starke has a list of which foods are true Chametz Gummer, that they're really, really Chametz, and which foods are, are, are not. So like, for example, they say there that if you go and you look at certain cereals, so there's a, uh, a lot of cereals, like for example, Rice Krispies, has barley malt in the ingredients. So, even if you were Sephardic and you ate rice on Pesach, you would not be allowed to eat Rice Krispies because of the fact that there's barley malt in there, and the barley, of course, is, comes from the five grains. However, nevertheless, it's definitely one should sell the Rice Krispies, but even those that have this, um, even though they have this practice to not own any true chametz on Pesach, this would not fall into the category. Why? Because if you look on the list of the ingredients, it's all the way on the bottom. So there's so little in it that uh, we view it as being insignificant enough that it would not be considered to be true, true chametz, and you would be allowed to own it on Pesach, even according to that admirable practice of not owning true chametz on Pesach. So barley malt, for example, if it's uh, on the bottom of, of, of ingredients, is not true chametz. So another thing that they have on their list is flour. Flour is not true chametz, and... Uh, they say, and I'm assuming that's because they say very simply that there's no reason to assume that the flour got wet and that leavening took place, that actual actual chimers actually became chametz, and uh, and therefore one even one that has a practice of getting rid of all chametz before Pesach would in fact be allowed to own bags of flour. On, well, I don't want to say own; they should definitely sell it to the non-Jew, but it would not be a violation of this practice of not owning true chametz. So, just a regular bag of flour, we don't assume. That, that actually did have any leavening take place. Uh, once we're on the topic, I'll also throw in that I was uh, s- surprised to see, I didn't realize this, I guess I didn't really think about it, but yeast is on that list also as being 100% permitted to own. You don't even have to get rid of it at all because yeast is just a bunch of chemicals and therefore it is not chametz at all. So there'd be nothing wrong with owning yeast. But anyway, getting back to this. So if you have something which is made from the five grains and there was some type of mixture of liquid, some type of mixture of liquid, then we assume that chametz, it started to become chametz, and that's what you're not allowed to own on Pesach. And the Torah tells us that lo chametz, lo you're not allowed to own chametz or se'or. Se'or is a hard word to translate. Translated as like sour, though, or something like that. Um, that's essentially... For our purposes, it means the same thing as, as, as chametz. I think that the way that it works was that they had this, um, sometimes they would have, instead of yeast, they would have uh, a, like a starter piece that it became sour, uh, like rotten almost. And they would use that to, uh, to make other doughs rise. And, uh, but because that comes from bread, that would also be a problem to own. But nevertheless, the Torah uses both of these words. Do not own chametz and do not own se'or. Um, the, the, actual, the actual words are um, lo, lo yimotze, it should not be found in your house. And lo yirelecha, it should not be seen to you. But the way that the Chacham explained this, the sages say that it means that you should not own any chametz on Pesach. Uh, there's not an aver to see chametz which doesn't belong to you. Uh, if you go shopping on Cholamoid, uh, so you don't have to skip the bread aisle, might be a nice idea, but there's nothing wrong per se with seeing chametz. You're just not allowed to see chametz which belongs to you. So what that means is that you're not allowed to own, you're not allowed to own any chametz. Now, when it 
so that is the that is chametz. As far as other liquids go, so let's just keep it simple and say that yes, it's not only water, but if it became, if uh, if if it was created by flour and some other type of liquid, be it eggs or apple juice, etc., so then that also would be a problem, and that would also create this leavening. It would create chimutz, is the verb of becoming chametz. Now, how does matzah work? So, matzah is almost spelled exactly like chametz. Well, I, that's not precise. Matzah is the same letters as chametz, except for the fact that mem is the same, the tzari is the same, and uh, chametz has a ches, and matzah has a hay. So the, I think it's the Arizal points out that the hay is almost as much as the ches, but it's a little bit less. The, it doesn't go all the way to the top. And what that means is that you could the difference between chametz and matzah could be very small. If you manage to make your matzah in less than 18 minutes, then beautiful, you have matzah. If it takes you longer than 18 minutes, then all of a sudden, it's not matzah, it is chametz. Now, the only thing that you're allowed to make matzah from is something which could become chametz. Simply put, you can only make matzah from the five grains. You cannot make rice matzah. You cannot make corn matzah. Matzah has to come from the five grains. If something doesn't have the potential, if it doesn't have the ability to become chametz, then it cannot be used for matzah. Matzah can only be made from barley, rye, oat, wheat, or spelt. Now, to the best of my knowledge, there nobody knows how to make uh, barley matzah or rye matzah. I guess it's just not really uh, it's just not really doable. Um, wheat matzah is obviously what most people have. Uh, spelt matzah is becoming more and more popular, and it tastes somewhat pretty similar to to wheat matzah. And then you have oat matzah. Now it's interesting if you look at the boxes of oat matzah, it'll say on it that this is only intended for those people that cannot eat wheat or spelt matzah. And the reason for that is as follows. Because the truth is that the Hebrew word for oats is a little bit of a debate if that's really referring to, if, the, if that's really referring to oats. And in, in other words, obviously the Torah doesn't use the word oats. So the question is, what exactly is it referring to? So our tradition is that it is referring to oats. However, there are certain questions on this based on different Gemaras. And therefore, therefore, there is a concern that perhaps uh, that word in the Torah is not actually referring to oats. Sorry, that was a little bit imprecise. The uh, the Torah doesn't use it, but uh, in Mishnah Hebrew we have Shibolet Shual or Shibolet Shual, which we assume we translate it as oats. But uh, nevertheless, it is a question if this expression Shibolet Shual does in fact refer to oats, and if it would not, then there was some other mysterious fifth grain, which is what is referred to when we use this expression. <laughs> And therefore, oats would actually not be this fifth grain. So it's a debate, and therefore, one that is not able to have wheats or oats, because they're allergic, celiac, or the like, 
would therefore for sure eat oats because it's very possible that one does fulfill the mitzvah, but because it's a doubt, therefore one that has the ability to eat wheat, wheat or spelt should definitely choose to choose to do so. I have a son that's allergic to both wheat and spelt, and we buy him oat matzah because that's the best that we can do. When he was much younger, I don't want to embarrass him too much, but he, when he was much younger, so we gave him the oat matzah, and he found it to be very untasty, and he exclaimed that it tasted worse than the maror. Now, my understanding is that oats are by nature very bitter, and they steam them before we ever see it in like oatmeal or anything like that. And because of chametz issues, they can't take the oats and steam them before they make them into matzah. And therefore, the oat matzah has a bit of a bitter taste. But I will tell you that now he does eat oat matzah, uh, and he says that it's not so bad. So, I guess it's really not that bad. But it's not as tasty. So you probably wouldn't want it anyway, but nevertheless, if it is the only way the one could fulfill the mitzvah eating matzah on Pesach, then for sure, no question, go out and buy oat matzah. It's a little bit more expensive, but it's not so expensive. And uh, I pay $28 for half a pound of hand. And if you're getting machine, it's $28 this year for a pound of machine oat matzah. So yeah, it's uh, more expensive. Um, I guess twice the price. But um, maybe a little bit more. But anyway, that's what we do to fulfill the mitzvah. And you get yourself, oh, so that being the case, let's get back to what you're talking about. That being the case, so if somebody goes and they have matzah on their table, the only thing which you should have in your house, which you own on Pesach, that could actually be chametz, is matzah. In other words, it's possible that somehow some chametz got into your food that you're eating on Pesach. But what are the chances? We are so careful. So you say, okay, fine. Of course, I'm careful, but I buy processed foods. I buy something from the store. Is it possible that chametz mixed in? Well, that's what we have a mashkiach for. That's what people are checking for. And God willing, it is, there is absolutely no chametz that is there. The one thing in your house that has potential to be chametz is the one thing that actually comes from one of the five grains. What is that? That is the matzah that's sitting on your table. So the most light, so the only matzah has to come from something that has the ability to become chametz. So the one thing which is likely, not likely, God forbid, the one thing which could potentially be chametz is your matzah. I one time heard that there are those that they're so, so nervous about their mitzvos that they eat matzah because of course what would Pesach be without matzah and we have a mitzvah on Pesach the matzah but nevertheless they don't eat matzah except when they have to in other words they'll eat it for a yontif meal they'll eat it for a Shabbos meal but they won't eat it on a Tuesday morning for, a, for, for lunch you know matzah and cream cheese or matzah bry or matzah pizza or anything like that and the reason is because they say I've got to stay away from chavitz now that obviously is being extremely extremely pious and probably also extremely extremely nervous because we're we're uh, we're extremely careful with our matzahs to make sure that they don't, that they don't become chametz. And conversely, you're losing out because according to the opinion of the Vilna Gona, at least, every single time that you eat matzah on Pesach, so the Torah tells you, Shivas yamen matzos tochelu, that you should eat matzah for seven days on Pesach. So therefore, it says the Vilna Gona, every time you eat matzah, you get a mitzvah. So these people, because they're being extra careful, they're, they're, they're also losing out, they're also losing out on that. So to summarize what we've done so far, on Pesach, we're not allowed to own any chametz. Chametz is defined as something that was made from the five grains, and then liquid was added to it, and 18 minutes passed, and it now became chametz, and that's what you're not allowed to own on Pesach. 
However, matzah has to be made from the five grains, and therefore it has to be made in less than 18 minutes. Once it's baked, of course, the clock stops, and it's not a problem anymore. In actuality, it doesn't take that long to bake a matzah. It takes probably uh, from beginning to end, like four minutes or six minutes, if you go slow, something like that. And it goes rather quickly. The reason why you'll see in the store that there are boxes of matzah that say not for Passover use, you only see this with machine matzah, not with hand matzah. But the reason why you'll see that it says not for Passover use is because it's a lot of work to clean all the machinery. And every 18 minutes, so everything is going to become chametz which means that if you've got like leftover dough on the mixer or leftover dough in the mixing bowl on the, on the rolling pin or whatever, or inside the machine, whatever the, we're talking about machines. So on, on the machine or anything like that, or in the crevices, so that will become chametz after 18 minutes. So therefore, every 18 minutes, they got to stop in the factory and they got to clean everything to make sure that none of that will, God forbid, go into the next batch. Because if that comes into the next batch, you're now mixing chametz into your matzah. So it's a lot of work to to do that, but that's what we do to make the matzah kosher. The reason why matzah is so expensive, right? some people joke, they say that the reason why matzah is called poor man's bread is because it makes you poor after you finish paying for it, but, excuse me, but the matzah is not expensive because of the ingredients. I and mean, we're talking about flour and water. The reason why it's expensive is because it's very labor-intensive. And part of the reason why it's so labor-intensive is because of the fact that they got to keep on stopping and they got to clean and they got to scrub to make sure that there's no chametz that's mixing in with the new batches. So matzah happens to be eaten year-long in all different types of situations. There's a fellow here in the community who told me that he one time went on a cruise and he ordered kosher meals. So they gave him an airline meal, every single meal, and uh, they didn't have uh, frozen rolls, although I guess they probably could have. So what they did was they, they gave him a box of matzah every single meal. Now, what in the world is he going to do with a box of matzah? But that was, they didn't have like smaller than a pound size of boxes of matzah. So every single meal, they gave him a brand new box of matzah to eat. So in all types of situations, people do eat matzah all year long. So therefore, it's not worth it for them to put in the effort to clean out the machines and all that every 18 minutes. Why bother? Nobody needs it. Nobody wants it. So therefore, there's a lot of boxes of matzah on the shelf, which say not for Passover use. So you just got to be careful when you buy matzah on Pesach to make sure that you're getting matzah, which is actual for Passover use. Now, sometimes when people refer to hand matzah, they call hand matzah shmura matzah. That's actually a little bit of a misnomer. There's two types of shmura matzah. There's hand shmura matzah, and there is machine shmura matzah. But both of them are called shmura matzah. There's different opinions about using hand matzah and using machine matzah. There are those that say that they will only use hand matzah on Pesach because that's what my grandfather used, my great-grandfather, my great-great-grandfather. And when we left Egypt, of course, we only had hand matzah, so that is what I'm going to do. That's what I'm going to use hand matzah. There are those that have the opinion, and they say, well, I'll use hand matzah, or I'll use machine matzah, whichever one happens to be. A lot of people prefer uh, hand matzah for the Seder because it looks more authentic or something like that. And then over the course of Pesach, they'll use machine matzah, and they, whatever their host happens to serve or the like, they're happy to eat. No difference, really, halachically, between hand matzah or machine matzah. 
And then there are those that have the opinion that they would much rather use machine overhand. And the reason for that is because a machine has the ability to be much more precise than hand. So therefore, they argue, why would I use a hand matzah if I want to make sure that my matzah is the most kosher possible, so then I want to rely on a machine, not rely on on, on human, where you have more potential for human error. So there's different practices. There are those that only use hand matzah, those that only use machine matzah, and then most people, I think, which fall in the middle category. of Either that one or that one, it doesn't make a difference. Personally, I come from a Hasidic background, so therefore we only use hand matzah. Now, nevertheless, it is appropriate, Seder night, to use shmura matzah. Now, shmura means either hand shmura or machine shmura. It means that there's extra watching that went in already from the time that the wheat was harvested. It was guarded very carefully to make sure that no water comes anywhere near that wheat before it was turned into matzah. Now, for Seder night, one should be careful to eat shmur matzah. The minig has become, the custom has become, that people eat shmur, shmur matzah all Pesach long. Now, this is not a requirement, but it is a nice custom that many people have. I remember when I was in high school, my general studies principal, Mr. Schneier, I learned recently that he passed away. So, my general studies principal, Mr. Schneier, all of Ashalom, he told me once that, uh, unfortunately, the world has become much more a world of extremes, which he's not the only person to make that observation, obviously. But uh, he's told me this famous idea that there are more and more people today that are eating only shmur matzah on Pesach. But there are less and less people that are eating matzah on Pesach, which is sad. So I guess the more shmur part is nice, but the less matzah is not so nice. So we've got to do whatever we can to reverse that trend. But anyways, there are many people that eat only shmur matzah on Pesach. When you're in the supermarket and you see one of these like eight boxes of matzah that all come uh, shrink-wrapped together and... That's not shmur. The way that you know that it's shmur is by looking at the price tag. It's a little bit more expensive, but uh, or significantly more expensive. But uh, but definitely for the seder, it's appropriate to get shmur matzah. For the rest of Pesach, it's a nice practice, but definitely not a requirement. Now, I want to talk about two more aspects that are loosely connected to this. One of them is kitneos, or kitneot, and that is that there's this Ashkenazic practice that we don't eat things that have, well, kitneos is usually translated as legumes, but it's not necessarily the most accurate translation, because uh, rice would also fall under that category, and I don't think rice is a legume. Feel free to correct me if I'm wrong. But um, certain things which could be ground into a flour, something which could be ground into a flour, the practice is that Ashkenazim don't eat that on Pesach. Now, there are two reasons that are given for this. One reason is because of the fact that because it could be ground into a flour, there's a concern that it might go and look like you're having something which is actual real flour. So therefore, anything which could be made into a flour uh, like corn flour or rice flour, we don't eat it even if it's in its whole state, well, just like rice or corn and the like, uh, because of the fact that it could be ground into a flour. Uh, another possible explanation is that the places where typically this was grown in the field was right next to where they grew the wheat. 
So because it was grown in the same place in the field, there was a serious concern that perhaps it might get mix, it might get mixed in when it was being harvested, and therefore, sorry, when you're harvesting the rice or the corn or the beans, whatever the case may be, so you might accidentally also harvest some wheat, and therefore there might be wheat mixed in, and therefore there was a concern that that, would, that, that you might end up eating wheat on Pesach because it, got, because it got mixed in. Now, this is a stringency. It's not even a rabbinic practice. It's lower than that, but it is a very strict Ashkenazic practice, which means that we don't have the uh, right to just say, well, I don't really want to hold that way anymore. Um, it's a strong Ashkenazic practice, which all Ashkenazim should really hold by. Nevertheless, the only prohibition is to eat kitneos. But something which is, but you're perfectly, it's perfectly permissible to own kitneos on Pesach. So if somebody has to have like a medicine or something like that, then it would be definitely be preferable if they could get something which is kitneos and not get something which is chametz. If they have to have medicine which is chametz, that's a very serious question. To not take your medicine is not simple at all, and they should definitely go and consult with their rabbi. But to own kitneos on Pesach, and even in certain cases, to eat kidney on Pesach is definitely not as serious. Um, for example, with uh, young children, sometimes if we can't find a food which they'll eat, and they're very, very young, and they're, and they're I don't know, one, two years old, whatever the case may be, and uh, they're not eating uh, food properly on Pesach, so then also we might give them kidney host. Um, if you have a pet, and you need to feed your pet on Pesach, so you're not allowed to feed your pet chametz, that's a serious problem, what do you do with your pet over Pesach, but if your pet's willing to eat kidneyos, so then that's perfectly permitted, because the pet's not obligated to uh, to keep mitzvot, it's just you are not allowed to own chametz, but you are allowed to own kidneyos, so you would be allowed to feed that 100% to your pet. So again, the only prohibition is to eat it, there's no prohibition to own it. That's why you find, um, I believe, I'm not positive about this, but I believe that in the past um, I saw that like frozen salmon. So they so even if it didn't have a hashgacha, what could be wrong with it? It's only salmon. But nevertheless, there was some coating on top of it that came from kidneyos, and therefore it was uh, if you wanted to eat it, you had to scrape it off so that you don't ingest kidneyos. Um, but that would be uh, that 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 would be that. Interestingly enough. Um, peanuts is a big debate whether it falls under the category of kidneyos it doesn't fall under the category of kidneyos and the common practice today is that we do view it as kidneyos but that's actually changed as uh, people can find pictures and they can show you that 70 years ago, whatever it was there was peanut oil that had the hashkocha of the OU so over time the custom has changed in recent times that we do include peanuts in this prohibition of having kidneyos, but it's not so clear that it would fall under the category of kidneyos. Having a son that's allergic to peanuts, he loves it, be- that it is included, because that means that on Pesach, he knows that he doesn't have any questions. Any food that's certified kosher for Pesach means that it is in a nut, f- in a peanut-free facility, and, uh, and he does not have to worry about it at all, because they're all being careful to make sure that there's no kidneyos mixed in. So, that's as far as kidneyos goes. Now, the Sephardic practice is that they do do this. Now, I don't know exactly when the Ashkenazic Sephardic prac- uh, split came about. I'm going to say about a thousand years ago, but I could be off by a few hundred years. 
in either direction. In other words, once upon a time, there was no Sephardic Jews and Ashkenazic Jews. There were just Jews. Um, is it possible that each tribe had certain traditions that were different than other tribes? It's entirely possible. It's a good theory. But as far as like Ashkenazic Jews, Sephardic Jews, that did not exist. Um, when the exile occurred, so different people eventually got exiled into different lands, and there were the Sephardic Jews living in the Sephardic lands, uh, the Middle East, and then you had the Ashkenazic Jews that were living in Europe. And over time, the rabbis of the different communities, um, they felt that it's important to make a certain um, enactment, or the other ones felt it wasn't important to make a certain enactment, or um, they understood the halacha to be one way, while the other ones uh, understood the halacha to be another way, more like um, where there was a disagreement in the earlier um, codes or in the earlier commentaries, and the Ashkenazic rabbis wanted to side with the Tosfos, and the Sephardic rabbis wanted to side with the, uh, with the Rambam. Okay, that's a bad example because that's already after the split. Uh, that's already after the split because the, the Rambam was Sephardic, Maimonides, and uh, Tosfos the Ashkenazic rabbis. But, um, but anyways, over time, so the... So there became more and more differences in what became the, known as the Sephardic practice and what became known as the Ashkenazic practice. So this concern that either the flour might be confused with the flour of wheat or that perhaps the, the um, kidneyos, the rice, etc., grows near wheat and you might accidentally get some wheat inside of it when you pick it, this was considered by the Ashkenazic rabbis to be a real concern, but by the Sephardic rabbis, they never felt that it was a concern. So therefore, they never made an enactment, and that is why, until today, Sephardim are permitted to eat kidneys. I know that when it comes to rice, though, they are extremely careful, and they'll only uh, eat it after they've checked it, I believe, three times to make sure that the rice is only 100% rice and that nothing else is mixed in. But as far as eating kidneyos go, Sephardim do eat kidneyos. Now, in America, it's quite difficult to find food which is kosher for Pesach, but only for Sephardim. In Israel, though, where, where there's a very strong Sephardic population, so then, as an Ashkenazi, I can tell you that it's difficult to go shopping because you've got to double-check everything that you buy because there are certain things which are kosher for Pesach. But only kosher for Pesach if you're Sephardic. Or is there a kosher for Pesach? Only for those people that have the practice of eating Kidneyos. Um, so, for example, there are certain tuna fishes which are 100% kosher for Pesach, for Ashkenazim, and for Sephardim, and there are certain uh, tuna fish which are only kosher for Sephardim because they have kidneyos mixed in. And this is very common in this is very common in Israel, in America, not so common. But some of the stores do bring in Israeli products. Um, one year we had a baby that wasn't. Uh, wasn't really eating yet, and we weren't, but eating just a little bit, and uh, I think it was a he consisted mostly, uh, uh, survived mostly on oatmeal, and we weren't sure what we were going to do, because obviously no oatmeal on Pesach, so there was a store, I was in uh, New York that year for Pesach, there was a store that had some Israeli products, I was hoping to, to so we were told that we could feed the baby kidneyos, um, I was hoping to be able to get rice cereal, um, I don't know if the, only the store didn't have it, or uh, or they or or, do, or doesn't exist because you want to check it. You can't really check uh, once it was changed, turned into a cereal. But anyways, there was this corn meal. It was like a paste, and uh, 
It didn't look particularly appetizing, and my child didn't think it was particularly appetizing, so it didn't help. But that would be the idea of having kidneyos. Now, if one does have kidneyos on Pesach, for either medicinal reasons, or for their animal, or for their young child, whatever the case may be, so then, because we don't want to eat it, we also don't want to wash it in the same sink that we wash our kosher for Pesach dishes. So, therefore, we would, like, wash it in, like, the bathroom sink or something like that, or try to use disposable, because of the fact that, for the people that are being careful, again, referring to Ashkenazim, that are being careful, to not eat kidneys, you wouldn't want that to be mixed in with your kosher for Pesach cutlery and dishes. Now, interestingly enough, according to all the definitions of kidneys, potatoes should really fit in that category also. And potatoes, technically, you would think would be kidneys. And the reason why potatoes are not kidneys is because, simply put, that when they made this gazer, when they made this fence, this enactment, to not eat kidneys, they didn't know from potatoes yet. It hadn't made its way to Europe, and uh, because they were not familiar with potatoes, it wasn't, part, it wasn't part of the enactment. Years later, when potatoes were introduced to our diets, so it was the rabbis, I guess, were like, all right, we're not going to go now, hundreds of years later, and add that to this decree of not having kidneys and say that potatoes are included. So, interestingly enough, potatoes have become one of the main parts, Is right, it's a staple on Pesach, while technically, according to Ashkenazic practice, it should have been uh, it should have been prohibited. Uh, I one time saw, I believe it was in Rabbi Blumenkrantz's Pesach Digest, but I don't know, it was many many years ago that he quoted some sefer, some book is saying that some rabbi that we have to be thankful to the fact that Hashem arranged it the way that He did, that we did not that there were no potatoes back then, because if there would have been potatoes, then they would have been prohibited, and then, in fact, we would not have what to eat. But because potatoes can be made into potato starch, and you can make all types of cakes and cookies out of it, so really, it should fall into that category. But because it wasn't around, it's not. Which brings us to the last one of kidneys, and that is quinoa. Where does quinoa fall in? So this is a relatively new question, because quinoa, while it's been around forever, is only become popular in the last, uh, I don't know, 10, 15 years. And how do we view quinoa? Do we view quinoa that it's like rice um, and that it is kidneyos, or do we say that quinoa is not kidneyos because it wasn't part of the original because it wasn't part of the original decree? So this there's actually a lot of different opinions on this. There are those that take a very strict opinion and they say that it is 100% kidneyos. How they differentiate between that and potatoes, I'm not really 100% sure, but nevertheless. Um, Nevertheless, there are very serious uh, halakhic authorities that say that quinoa is kidneyos. Um, on the other hand, the Starke goes, and they have kosher lepesach certified quinoa because they say it's not part of the decree, it's not kidneyos. The OU was uh, ambivalent. That's not precise. Let me say it like this. Um, there were two main halakhic decisors for the OU. Reversal shechter, shlito, which means uh, Hashem should give him a long life, and... Rev. Yisrael Belsky, Zichron Levracha, of blessed memory. And they were split on this. Rev. Herschel Schechter felt that it is not a problem of kidneyos, while Rev. Belsky felt that it is a problem of kidneyos. As such, as such, the OU didn't want to uh, stake an opinion as far as official policy goes. Um, however, now that Rev. Belsky has passed away, so I, apparently that's the reason why the OU does now, in fact, certify quinoa, which is kosher for Pesach. So again, I think that the understanding would be that 
even though it's not really that different from other items which are prohibited, but because it was not around uh, when they made the original enactment, therefore it would not be a problem of kidneys. Now, just to finish up with one last thing, and that is there is a Hasidic practice to not eat gibroks on Pesach. Now, what is gibroks? Gibroks is a Yiddish word, literally means soaked, soaked matzah, or in Hebrew it's referred to as matzah shruya. Now, in practi- practicality, practically what that means is to make sure that your matzah doesn't get wet. Now, it seems that the reason why this was this custom was created a few hundred years ago, um, it seems that the reason why it was created is because there was a concern of one of two things. Either there might be uh, some flour, because when you have flour, and you got a lot of flour in a matzo bakery, so the flour just like sort of just like floats all over the place, and then you come back later and you find surfaces that have uh, flour that rested on those surfaces. So there's a concern that you got big bags of flour in the matzo bakery, and maybe you just have some flour that now went and rested on top of the matzah. So, okay, fine, there's dry flour on your matzah. But if you would then go and make that matzah wet, then boom, after, that, after 18 minutes, that would become chametz. After 18 minutes, that would become chametz. Um, another concern was that um, the matzahs we make today are quite thin, but it seems that uh, a few hundred years ago, the matzahs were thicker, and uh, therefore, perhaps a matzah wouldn't be fully baked inside. Maybe also they couldn't get their ovens as hot as ours, I'm not sure. And a matzah may not be fully baked inside. And therefore, if inside you may find that you have a pocket of flour or something like that. And again, the same concern, that it might become wet. So this custom starts with the Baal Shem Tov, uh, who is the founder of Hasidus. And it's a Hasidic practice. And uh, those people that follow this practice are extremely strict, are extremely strict about it to make sure that their matzah does not become does not become wet. Um, how strict? How strict are they? So there's different levels. Um, in Chabad, for example, they're even concerned that the uh, that they're even concerned that the matzah that 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 the, that the matzah crumbs which are sitting there on the table should not sh- should not become wet because if you take this to the logical extension, so that would mean that the crumbs on the table perhaps are the same problem. And uh, if they become wet, then you now have chametz on your tablecloth. So, so therefore, they'll eat their matzah over a plastic bag to make sure to catch all of the crumbs. In my family, we're also uh, we're also strict about this custom of not eating gibraks, not letting our matzah become wet. However, um, I was told by my uh, cousin, who's a uh, who's a great rabbi, that that we don't take it that to that extreme, we're only careful enough to not eat it. So therefore, we're not going to eat the matzah when it became wet. But if it became wet, we're not eating it, like, for example, in the garbage or on the table or anything like that. He said that's not a concern. That would be taking it too far. So, so therefore, we don't, um, there are those that don't eat wet matzah. Now, if you don't let your matzah become wet, so essentially what that means is you also can't use matzah meal because matzah meal is taking ground-up matzah and than making it wet to cook or bake something. So no matzah pizza, no matzah braai, um, no um, cakes or any or cookies made from matzah meal. So interestingly, um, because I have this practice, so the only thing that you could eat on Pesach that would be a mizonos is if you have something that's made from matzah meal. Because matzah itself, of course, is a hamotzi, and something made from matzah meal um, would have the... Would, would not retain its hamotzi and would be a mizonos. However, being that I don't eat matzah meal on Pesach, so the entire Pesach, we don't eat any mizonos 
And it's only after Pesach that we get to make a Mizonus again. Um, because, or actually the Hasidic practice is that on the eighth day of Pesach, um, the eighth day of Pesach is a little bit less strict than the rest of the days of Pesach. And therefore on the eighth day of Pesach we do eat Gibraks. Um But other than that, other than that we don't eat... Uh, we don't eat anything made from matzah meal because that would be taking your matzah and getting it wet. Now, one last thing, and that is egg matzah. And that is egg matzah. Now, egg matzah or something made out of, or matzah made out of fruit juices, what's the deal with that? So if you look on the box, it says that uh, it's kosher for Pesach, but it should only be used by like people that are infirm or something like that. And the, the question is like this. When we say, and I mentioned this a long time ago at the very beginning when I was talking about chametz, when we say that matzah and water becomes chametz after 18 minutes, well, whatever this chemical reaction of chimots, of leavening is, would that be equally true when it comes to flour and eggs, or flour and fruit juice, or is that only true when it comes to flour and water? So there's two opinions. One opinion is that, no, no chimots, no leavening takes place. It's specific to water. The other opinion is not only does it take place, but it goes even faster. Now, that is not the main opinion. That is not the main opinion, but it's an opinion that we try to be strict for. So, therefore, if one can, he should be strict and not have any eggmonts on Pesach because of the concern that maybe it became chametz even faster. Well, how fast? Maybe if I want to have eggmonts, I just have to make it in nine minutes. We don't know. We don't know how fast. So therefore, we don't do it. However, if somebody is, for whatever reason, uh, sickly, and I don't know, it's not that much softer, but if he has difficulty eating regular matzah, but he could survive, he could manage to eat egg matzah, so then that would be permitted for, that would be permitted for him to eat. Now, technically, you should be able to make any type of food out of flour, um, maybe flour and water, or maybe flour and eggs and the like, if you did it in less than 18 minutes. But, like I said, that's not, um, that's not our practice. And Actually, I'm, I'm not sure if I mentioned that yet, but that's not, our practice is that we are strict, and the only thing that we'll make out of flour and water is matzah. We won't make anything else. So even though it might be possible to, like, uh, I don't know, uh, make cookies and do it very, very quickly if you make a very, very small batch and do it in less than 18 minutes using real flour and, and real water and just do it very quickly and throw it, and throw it into the oven or using fruit juices and the like, that we don't do. Uh, because, uh, again, a concern that uh, maybe we might mess up and, therefore, the only thing which we have from flour on Pesach is matzah, except matzah meal. Right? Because if you have matzah and you ground it up, so then, unless you're worried about gebrooks, which most people are not, so then there is no concern that it's not going to go and become, and, and become chametz. So therefore, you could make foods out of, out of matzah meal. Now, why is it that it's harder and harder to find cakes and the like made out of matzah meal today? And uh, most of the cakes that we find are made out of potato starch, which would mean that the brach on them is a shahako, and it also means that it's a little bit less filling. So the reason is very simple, because there are so many people that are careful, they do have this family custom of not eating brooks. So just the company say, why should we go and make food which only some people are going to eat kosher for Pesach? We want to get the maximum uh, consumer base. So therefore they'll go and they'll make these uh, shahakal cakes, they'll make these cakes out of potato starch. But, but uh, that makes it harder and harder to find cakes that are made out of matzah meal. But for those people that don't have this custom to not eat gibraks and they have no issue with eating matzah meal, so then, yeah, you probably would want matzah meal cakes. Um, they're probably more tasty. 
So that is a brief introduction, or maybe it wasn't so brief this time, uh, into chametz and matzah and different aspects that connect to that. Thank you so much for listening.